All right, I have a question for you guys this morning. Uh, raise your hand if you have read or seen the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Yes, okay, I figure a lot of you. Okay, <laughs> nice. Uh, well, well, it's not a strict allegory, and there have been some discussions about this. Like, is Lord of the Rings, like, covertly Christian? From best as I can gather, or best as I can tell, it's not. It's not like a Chronicles of Narnia. It's not like uh, Pilgrim's Progress, where are these there are these like explicit like Christian themes that are being pushed throughout the book. And yet, there are still things in Lord of the Rings uh, that we could see definitely a vague semblance to Christianity, maybe in a general sense, uh, the idea that good triumphs over evil we could connect to scripture. Maybe you're thinking of how uh, the least in Middle Earth, the hobbits, are exalted to this position of just like honor and glory. We could, we could see some biblical themes there. Maybe really specifically, you could think about how uh, Samwise, Frodo's friend, uh, is the epitome of a faithful, loving friend throughout the trilogy. Uh, maybe it's even making a connection to your mind of what Proverbs said about a friend uh, that sticks closer than a brother and maybe even connecting that further to uh, what God has done for us in Christ and that relationship there. But there is one character that I think bears a striking resemblance to something we'll look at today. And I want to do like a quick like uh, review or analysis of this character, Gandalf. How many of you guys know who Gandalf is? Right, so when you're first introduced to him in the series, he's called Gandalf the Grey. And his name is pretty descriptive of what he looks like. I mean, when you see him, at least on the screen, he is really like disheveled and kind of raggedy. He's got like this drab gray coat on and this drab hat and he is just like totally unkept. And he's kind of this charming, you know, friendly wizard who like embarks on this journey with uh, Frodo and his gang. And he's powerful, but he meets his match in what is called a Balrog in Lord of the Rings. Maybe you are like remembering this really like famous scene from the movie series in which uh, Gandalf and his friends are in uh, these mines under a mountain and they all cross this bridge and Gandalf kind of stays behind to protect the bridge from the Balrog and he yells those famous lines, you shall not pass. And you know, he like hits a staff on the ground and they engage in this fight for what amounts to really days, like down the mountain, up the mountain. And Gandalf eventually after days of fighting does end up destroying the Balrog, uh, but in the process, he dies as well. And that's a major blow to the hopes of this group that is on their way to destroy the ring. I mean, here's the wizard, what seems to be maybe the most powerful guy among them, and he's gone. Then in the second book, he reappears. It's revealed that Gandalf is alive, except this time, he's got a couple upgrades, we might say. First of all, in his name, he's no longer Gandalf the Grey, but he's Gandalf the, the White. Yes, and like almost immediately, like when you see him on the screen, like you know, like, oh, something's different about this dude. He means business. No longer is he just like this mass of hair and like just unkept. He is like clean cut, fresh trimmed beard, pure white hair, white robes. I mean, like, you look at him, you're like, 
okay, something's different about Gandalf. <laughs> he, he's not messing around this time. And even when he's like fighting, uh, he's always like in the midst of these like really critical battles. And you know, even when things seem their darkest and you're looking at Gandalf, you're like, eh, I don't think he's dying off a second time. He, he's just too powerful. They're, they're not gonna kill this character off again. Uh, he's always right there delivering his friends, saving them from the immediate threat. And as I've taken a couple minutes now to describe, the difference in Gandalf between Gandalf the Grey and Gandalf the White kind of hinges around the central event of him dying and then coming back to life. And bear with me for a second here, but I, I'm going to argue that to a point... The same could be said of Christ, where he was certainly one way at his incarnation, but after his death and his resurrection, there is something that is almost markedly different about him, more pronounced, we might say. Here's, here's what I mean by that. His first coming, Jesus came as a servant. He was powerful, certainly. We can see that power demonstrated in his miracles, uh, you know, multiplying food, healing people, raising the dead even. But his purpose for his first coming was not to demonstrate his power, to show off who he really is. Jesus tells us his purpose in Matthew 20. He says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Jesus came the first time to die. But at the second coming, Jesus changes entirely. It's a different story when Jesus comes back a second time. Now, the scriptures give, I'll say, unequal weight to his first and his second comings. Of the two, the majority of the data in scripture is focused on his first coming. I mean, we have the Gospels and... Uh, four books dedicated to Jesus on earth at the Incarnation. And so as we're reading uh, through the Gospels, we're going to see a lot of Jesus being a servant. We're going to see a lot of Jesus being mistreated, of him occupying a lowly position. From his birth to his death, what we read of Jesus is all very much unlike what we would think of God coming to earth would look like. Let me just tease that out a little bit for you. So if we are thinking of God coming to earth and then we read about Jesus' story, things are going to seem a little off to us. For instance, we would expect God coming to earth would be at least born in a palace, somewhere where he's going to be praised and welcomed, and yet he's born in a manger with probably all the sights, sounds, smells of being in a barn. Uh, we might expect Jesus to be greeted by royalty, the spiritual elite. Wow, God is here. Instead, it's just the local shepherds and a handful of wise men that come and welcome his arrival onto the scene of human history. Uh, rather than inheriting mass wealth, as we might expect uh, God coming to earth to look like, we're told that Jesus was called a carpenter. He probably had to learn his father's own trade himself and practice that. Uh, through, you know, up until his ministry began. He knew what it was to work with his hands. Uh, rather than servants waiting on him hand and foot and meeting his every need, Jesus actually was a servant himself. 
Instead of having this spacious and extravagant home that was ornate and just decked out in gold and precious jewels, Jesus told people, listen, even the foxes and birds have a home, but the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. And this probably culminated in the fact that we might expect if God came to earth, that people would worship the ground he walked on, and yet we couldn't, that couldn't be further from the truth. He was hated at every turn. He was despised uh, to the point where people put him on a cross and killed him. The very one who made them God in the flesh. And throughout this whole ordeal, Jesus never acted out in anger. He never called those 12 legions of angels that he hinted about to come and rescue him. He never just threw out his hands and said, okay, enough of this. I'm done. I'm, I'm God in the flesh. I'm not taking any more of this abuse, this mistreatment at the hands of these people. No. As Isaiah 53 describes that Jesus instead was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He humbly came to earth. He willingly and quietly laid down his life to redeem the very people who killed him, who hated him. And with so much of the biblical data emphasizing Jesus' suffering, with so much of the biblical data emphasizing his humility, his humanity, we may begin ourselves to have a disproportionate view of Jesus. We might think that because Jesus was treated with contempt while he was on earth, that he's just going to be perpetually treated with contempt. That he's just always kind of going to be despised and the brunt end of people's mockery and jokes. We might think that. We might think that of the members of the deity, or the trinity rather, Jesus is the most inclined to show love and mercy. I mean, that's what we see of him in his first coming. He's just always loving, always mercy, uh, never doing anything remotely resembling like judgment. He does get angry a couple of times when he cleans the temple, but by and large, his character is just arms open, come to me, you're welcomed. And we might have those perspectives of Jesus. And yet we don't have to jump right to the book of Revelation to see that turned on its head. We can see Jesus, even in his earthly ministry, say, when I come back, things are going to be different. So for instance, John 17, 5, Jesus says this when he's praying. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Notice that Jesus here is saying while he was on earth, uh, not just give me glory when I come into your presence again, for the first time, no, Jesus says this is a restoration of the glory that he had had forever. Jesus is talking about knowing that his death is imminent. Please restore that glory that I once had with you. What we see in the Gospels is just a 30-year blip where Jesus sets aside that glory. The reality is, is that he has known glory forever. And the Apostle John who recorded this actually had seen the very glory of Christ himself in Matthew chapter 17, we have recorded for us that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. 
and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Imagine the disciples seeing this. Here is the guy that they've only ever known as a human. And yet they go up on this mountain, and Jesus is transfigured. They see his true glory. It left them changed. I mean, Mark records that this event left them terrified. They were terrified throughout it. Uh, They see Elijah. They see Moses come and talk to Jesus. God the Father audibly speaks to them. uh, And I'm sure they did not quickly forget this event. Peter actually talks about it in uh, 2 Peter, that he has seen the glory of of Christ. There's another instance that Jesus talks about, when I come back, it will be different than my first coming. That's in Luke chapter 21, where we read, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. As we've already drawn attention to this morning, Jesus' first coming was humble. It was easy to miss. In fact, a lot of people did miss his first coming. When Jesus comes back a second time, everyone's going to see it. It's going to be with power and great glory. And it is this coming Jesus who is described here as powerful and glorious that we are going to spend the rest of our time this morning studying. Two attributes in particular. One, that the resurrected Jesus is first a judge. Jesus is coming to judge And secondly, that the resurrected Jesus is king. So let's look at that first one, that Jesus as or is a judge. The Bible's pretty clear that it is, in fact, Jesus who's going to be judging all people at the end of days. Acts says this about him. This is Peter here speaking about Jesus, and he says, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Jesus himself says this about himself in John chapter 5, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. However, in spite of these two verses, Jesus as judge isn't something that that totally connects with us, because as we look at his first coming, We don't really see a whole lot of that. In fact, we see the Jesus who tells the woman caught in adultery, after everyone leaves, uh, you're free to go. I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. We see Jesus, while he's here on earth, uh, eating with the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. He's not judging them. He's actually in their midst. Well, welcoming them, partaking in meals with them. Uh, we see Jesus on the cross cry out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How, how are we supposed to understand uh, Jesus and his first coming not being all that judging and what we're reading here in Acts and John where we are told that Jesus at his second coming is coming as a judge. Well, I think the key is contained for us in John chapter 12, where Jesus just describes, listen, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And here's kind of the the difference, is that Jesus in his first coming came to save. In his second, he is here to judge. And his judgment is swift, it is thorough, it is just. 
And there's perhaps no better record of this than what we have recorded for us in Revelation chapter 19. So turn to Revelation 19, if you will, where we will see this judgment of Christ on full display. Revelation 19, what we have recorded in this passage of Scripture is believed to be the description of the Battle of Armageddon. This battle that takes place in the last days. And I want you to picture with me, if you will, in your mind's eye, an army made up of all of the nations of the earth. The kind of unity that an army made up of all the nations of the earth have is astounding. You know, usually we're used to, as we see right now, armies kind of fighting amongst themselves. But here is an army composed of all of the nations of the earth, and they have their eyes on one target, whom they are against, whom they stand in opposition to. Probably as far as you can see, there are soldiers gathered in battle formation on this field. And we might ask ourselves, who can stand against this military might? This fearful display of power. Look at verse 11. Where we read, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I just want to pause there and ask you, who is the one riding on this white horse? I heard a couple of you whisper it, Jesus. I would like you to tell me from the text how you know that this is talking about Jesus. Marcus. Yeah. Do you see his name, verse 13? The name by which he is called is the word of God. We see that in John 1 where Jesus is called the word. What else gives us a clue that this passage of Scripture is talking about Jesus? Say that again. King of Kings. Yes, another one of his titles. King of Kings, earlier ascribed to him, talking about Jesus. Anything else jumping out at you? Bonnie. Yeah, I think that's definitely something that is a connection to Christ, perhaps signifying his uh, sacrifice. I've got several things listed here. Let me just read them off for you. Verse 11, he's called faithful and true. He's called that earlier in the book. Clearly, 
This is talking about Jesus. Uh, as was mentioned, the word of God, king of kings and lord of lords. Uh, notice his description, verse 12. He has eyes like a flame of fire. We see that in Revelation chapter 1 when John sees him and describes him. He says, I saw someone who has white hair and eyes like a flame of fire. Uh, from his mouth comes a sword, verse 15. I think that uh, also in verse 15 there, when we read about how he rules with a rod of iron, this has a possible connection to Christ. And so we know from these verses that there is one on a white horse coming against this world army that has gathered against him at the Battle of Armageddon. Look what happens. Look at verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Here's what happens when you make war against Jesus. What are some of the observations, maybe, that even as I was reading that, or as you're looking at it now, that you could make about this battle? I have a couple things written down, but I'm curious, like, what is your response to seeing the carnage and the just destruction that takes place in this battle here in Revelation chapter 19? Any initial reactions? It's a one-sided battle. Yeah, it is lopsided. Uh, we see two people taken captive, the beast and the false prophet, and everyone else is killed. And we're not aware of any casualties on Jesus and his army side. Yeah, that's a great observation. Anything else? Hmm, where do you see that? That yeah. <laughs> it's already done before it starts. How about this? Uh, is this army that Jesus comes with necessary? No, it's not. They sound impressive. I mean, it's this whole like swarm of people that you kind of see riding behind him on a white horse of their own. They've got white robes. But who is it that does all the work? It's Jesus. It's from his mouth that comes this sword and slays everyone else. I can't help but think here when Jesus was in the garden. And again, a group of people come out against him with clubs and swords. And Jesus says two words and they're knocked backwards, right? And yet Jesus lets himself be taken by this crowd. He lets himself be falsely accused and tried and condemned to a cross. 
we're seeing Jesus' full display of power here. An army of the world is no match for him. And yet in the garden, Jesus went willingly. And we're left with no other conclusion that, listen, the Jews, the Romans, they did not take Jesus' life. But as Jesus says about himself, I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And he did all of that to redeem us, the very people who put him on the cross. However, for those who reject Christ in the last day, They will face the fury, as verse 16 says, the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. But this judgment doesn't end in chapter 19. Look over at chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Beginning in verse 11, where we read, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, as a disclaimer here, we're not told who it is that is sitting on this throne. It'd be a lot easier if they did. However, when we take into consideration verses we already considered this morning about how in Acts Jesus is said to judge the living and the dead, what John says about the Father giving him all authority to judge, what is said here in 2 Timothy, that I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, then we can conclude that who is presiding over this judgment here in Revelation chapter 20. It's got to be Jesus. And in this case, those who are being judged at this great white throne judgment are unbelievers. Those who, as the text says, whose names were not found written in the book of life. They are judged according to their works and cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. And I want you to imagine perhaps some of the Embarrassment and awkwardness don't do this justice. Where the one that you have spent your whole life rejecting and mocking and mocking his followers at the end of days judges you. And you are confronted with the reality that the person I have made fun of and rejected is my judge. How many of you guys have ever seen the show Undercover Boss? It's kind of built on this uh, idea that the CEO of company will put on this disguise, this makeup, maybe have some facial hair put on him, and he'll go and he'll work a day in the life of one of his 
common employees. And they don't know him from Adam. So they treat him like any other first day employee who maybe it's kind, maybe it's unkind, maybe they, uh, you know, just treat him really, really poorly. And he gets to see, you know, the culture of his company. He gets to see how the day-to-day -day operations work. And at the end of the show, there's like this big reveal where he takes off the makeup. I'm the CEO of, you know, name the company. And the people like probably have responses that range from like surprise to like, yikes, I should have treated you better because you're the guy who can fire me. Okay, that pales in comparison to what happens here at the Great White Throne Judgment where unbelievers are going to be judged by Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to judge believers too. This happens at the judgment seat of Christ. I think we call it the Bema Seat. We've considered it recently on Sunday mornings in 2 Corinthians. I think it's 5.10 that contains the description of it. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And while there's no fear of losing our salvation at this judgment, there certainly is fear of it being revealed that we have lived a life for ourselves. That Jesus, who bought us and redeemed us, only to find out, hey, thanks for heaven and salvation, but I'll live life my way. No, and in fact, as it has been the thrust of our sermons the last couple weeks, in everything, we should be making it our aim to please the Lord. So that at this day, when Christ is our judge, we're not ashamed of how we lived. All of this, these verses that we've considered, this text we're in right now, have been in part really, as a whole, to show us Jesus is judge. But there's one other attribute of Christ that we have to consider, and that is that Jesus is a king. Now, the kingship of Christ has been anticipated since Old Testament times. Perhaps most notably is when God makes his covenant to David in 2 Samuel, and he tells him, among other things, that his throne shall be established forever. And this verse is picked up in Psalms, in Isaiah. It's reiterated throughout the Old Testament. It's picked up again in Luke when the angel Gabriel says this to Mary, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Like we noted about Jesus, the judge, we don't really see a whole lot of his kingship either during his first coming on earth. We have glimpses of it. Uh, right at the very beginning of the story of Christ, these wise men are inquiring about where this baby is who's called the king of the Jews. In a cruel mockery of Jesus's actual position, tacked on top of his cross, is titled King of the Jews. Perhaps you're thinking, most notably, the thing that greatly signified his kingship is when he is entering Jerusalem that last time, and the people are lining the streets, calling out Hosanna to the son of David. 
worshiping him, waving these palm branches, throwing their coats down on the ground, we see a glimpse of Jesus' kingship. But really, if we evaluated his life as a whole, as according to the Gospels, he has no kingdom. He, he has few followers. He, he's not even respected like a king. And we would ask, okay, where is this king whose reign never ends? comes after his resurrection. I want to describe his kingdom for you first. The resurrected Jesus has a kingdom. It's called the New Jerusalem. Rather, that's its capital city. Let me give you the highlights of how it's described. In Revelation, it contains the dimensions of this capital city. It's said to be roughly 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles high, and 1,400 miles wide. For sake of reference, the largest city in the U.S. is Jacksonville. I should uh, specify that a little bit more. The contiguous United States, Jacksonville is the largest city by area. I think it's something like 860 square miles. For comparison's sake, here are the dimensions of the New Jerusalem overlaid over the map of the U.S. That is the city that Jesus will reign from. What's not captured here is how high it is. It's also 1,400 miles high. It's built with precious stones. It has no need of a sun because the glory of God and of the Lamb are light enough for it. Unless you think that you'll have eternity to just explore that square it has gates, and the gates are never shut. And Revelation talks about people entering in these gates. And remember that it is just John who describes this city coming down. There's a whole new earth and a new heaven for us to dwell in, and this is its capital city. This is what Jesus rules from. Its inhabitants, Revelation 21, 27, says this about the people who live there, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Only those who have submitted to Jesus will inhabit that city. How about the characteristics of his reign? I've said this before, but the idea of an absolute monarch terrifies us Americans, right? Uh, in fact, we set up a whole system of government to get away from that sort of model. We're like, no thank you to a king telling us you know, what to do. We'll set up these checks and balances and a system in government in which no one person gets to make all the decisions. We've only ever experienced, when there is an absolute monarchy, people abusing it. You can look back throughout history, and it is just dictator after dictator after dictator, who at the top says, hey, I've got all this power and wealth, and I'll use it for myself. Can I remind you that Jesus is not like that? 
The characteristics of his rule are, in fact, a wonderful thing. Psalm 45 says this. Actually, if you can bear with me, Hebrews quotes this passage of Scripture and says this is talking about Jesus. And here's what's said about Christ in his reign. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Jeremiah 23, 5 words it this way. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And while we are used to earthly rulers being selfish and greedy, abusing their power, the hallmarks of Jesus' rule is that he is just and righteous. And those things that we talked about last week that plague our lives in this world today, sorrow, tears, pain, heartbreak, the grind of everyday life, even death itself are not present in the kingdom that Jesus inaugurates. He rules perfectly. Finally, I would like us to consider the reception that Jesus receives. I've said it enough times this morning at his first coming, very humble. Honestly, we would say anticlimactic for God coming to earth. Very little fanfare. No one really gave him the time of day. How about Jesus' reception a second time? It's going to be very different. Revelation 1, 7 says this, that behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. You're not going to miss Jesus the second time around. He's not going to be coming humbly in a manger in the middle of nowhere, Galilee. Excuse me, Judea. Jesus is coming with the clouds. Every eye is going to see him. And commentators are careful to note, listen, not everyone's response to Jesus coming is going to be, yes, let's throw a party. This is great news. In fact, people are going to wail. They're going to mourn. Why do you think that is? Why do you think Jesus is going to have that response at his second coming? Any ideas? Because for them, his second coming is not a good thing. Because they know the one we've rejected, he's alive. He exists. He's here. And I've spent my whole life shaking my fist in his face, only to find out that he judges and he reigns. And there's going to be some wailing when Jesus comes back a second time. It will not be a pleasant experience for all people. Awkward does not do this feeling justice of seeing Jesus come back and know I messed up. Excited or not to see him, that does not change what our final response to Jesus will be. Philippians 2 words at best. 
Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I imagine that when this happens, there are going to be some knees that are bent begrudgingly. There are going to be some knees that bend out of fear. But for those of us who know Christ, we can't get on our knees fast enough. Say thank you for redeeming us for what you have done for me. And I want to revisit together a very well-known scene that takes place in heaven that's contained for us in Revelation chapter 5. Just maybe turn a couple pages back to chapter 5. Where we revisit this scene that awaits Jesus, beginning in verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne, the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the response that Jesus receives. And although this is not how he was treated, when he came to earth the first time. This is what Jesus deserves. Every creature in heaven, on earth, below the earth, singing his praises. And so just some final thoughts as we conclude. I would like us to marvel then at the humility of Jesus. To have left all of this behind and taken on the frailties of humanity and lived among us to be mistreated and mocked and be the object of cruelty by those he came to save. And as we were reminded just last week, the love of Christ should control us. And so as we think about how Jesus 
was mistreated for our sake. When we're mistreated, thinking about his love, it should allow us to just persevere and to endure and to know, listen, Jesus suffered this as well. I can too. And finally, I just want to encourage you that Jesus is coming to make all things new. That there is coming a day when he will eradicate evil, wickedness will be no more. Jesus is coming to reign. This should be an exciting thing that we should be ready for. Revelation 22:12 says this, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And if you this morning have not yet received Christ, he offers this invitation to you. Let the one who is thirsty come, but the one who desires take the water of life without price. I hope that you have seen Jesus, although humbled, certainly, and despised and rejected, is coming back to reign and to judge. And for us, it is an awesome thing. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We love your word and this picture you've given us of Christ, that he will be vindicated in the last days and seen for who he truly is and receive the worship that he deserves. Let us take part of that worship even now together. And it's in Christ's name we pray.